Hey, everybody, welcome in to another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Coach Danny Matranga, and today we're going to answer a ton of your questions. I have been fielding these various Q&A questions from my Instagram for a little while now, and I think there's a lot of good ones in here. And this is going to be a more rapid-fire Q&A. I'd like to answer as many of these as I can that I think kind of are congruent and that go together or that hit on different things so that we're not going into just this never-ending spiral of redundancy. But before we do, Let's do a little housekeeping. Today is June 2nd, so we are already, we're not halfway through the year, but we are five months of the way through 2021, which is hard to believe for me especially. I shouldn't say for me especially because I'm certainly not the only person who I'm sure has acknowledged this, but 2020 seemed like it was an incredibly chaotic, insane year with, of course, everything that was happening as the result of the pandemic. And for those of you who live here in America, there was a lot of political tension. There was a lot of race-related tension. The year just kind of dragged on and seemed extremely high stress. And 2021 started off a little rocky and certainly has been crazy for a large number of people, but it certainly seems to have picked up the pace. And I'm bringing this up because we're getting that much closer to another year passing by. And every time that happens, I think we kind of have to check in and go, okay, how am I doing with the goals that I set for myself, whether that's with my fitness, my business, my relationships, romantic family, friendships, otherwise, however you want to slice that pie, ask yourself how you're doing with the things that you set out to do and acknowledge that there's still seven twelfths of the year remaining. So you have over half of a year remaining to make that change. And this year is going pretty quick, specifically when we look at, hey, how was our pacing in 2020? It seemed slow, a little crazy. 2021 appears to be speeding right along. looks like we're getting towards the tail end of this pandemic. So just me checking in with you, keep in touch with the things that you want to accomplish, the goals that you've set for yourself, and acknowledge that, hey, we're halfway through this year. So if you had things that you wanted to do, now would be a very good time to sit down with those things and put a plan in place to tackle them. I just got back from Las Vegas, which was very, very hot, but I got the opportunity to unwind and recharge. And for me, that was actually at the top of my list. I had a lot of vacations planned last year because I was very, very, very certain after the financial year I had in 2019 and the way that I operate my business, that 2020 was going to be a year spent traveling. I had multiple flights, multiple hotels, multiple trips booked well in advance, going to Tulum, going to Hawaii, amongst many other places. All of that was derailed and I ended up spending most of 2020 the way I spent 2018 and 2019, which was working like crazy. And the chaos that was 2020 bled into 2021. And I just got out for my first vacation and I plan on doing quite a few more. But that was my commitment to myself in 2020 and I fell through on it. And so, you know, I'm just getting started with some of my own commitments. Now, I wanted to take time to detach because for somebody who likes to work like myself, that actually takes a commitment, which I know sounds kind of strange, but whatever those commitments are that you wanted to make, acknowledge that we're now, like I said, five twelfths of the year behind us. We have seven twelfths remaining. What are you going to do with that seven twelfths? What are you going to do with June, July, August, September, uh, October, November, and December? You can do a lot in that time if you're focused and you have those check-ins. Okay, so 
First question comes from at Kelly Kalinsky, and she asks, what are your thoughts on home workout programs like those created by Beachbody? Um, I'm not particularly a huge fan of the Beachbody brand as a whole. Um, I've harped enough on direct marketing and multi-level marketing in our space before that I don't want to dive too far down that rabbit hole. One thing that I will always say and that I really stand by in a country where, you know, we have over 60% of the population overweight or obese, I don't think that there's anything out there that's quote unquote bad, but I would say that for most people, beach body home programs are far from optimal, but they certainly beat the alternative. And, you know, if that's where you're at with your current level of fitness, I'm sure they make a fine solution. But if you are like most people and you have a goal that's pertaining to your body composition, you want to build muscle, you want to burn body fat, I think you would be better off focusing on a more, what I would describe as traditional resistance training modality, like just plain old weightlifting three times a week paired with proper nutrition and paying attention to lifestyle factors like sleep, stress, supplementation, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, like walking, great things like that. I would do that and try to put my eggs in that basket per se before I put my eggs in the basket of like home workouts on my TV from Beachbody and the Shakeology and all the other layers and elements that are kind of just tied into or woven into that brand as a whole. I would, I would avoid that if I were, you know, in your shoes. Next question comes from at Maria baby. And she asks, should I lock my knees at the top after squatting? Yes or no? So the answer is basically yes, but it really depends on how we define the term lock. So when you squat, you have a barbell on your back and it's going from probably the top of your shoulder blades or slightly on your upper back if you squat low bar. And that force is going to carry you downward. It rests on your spine. You bend your knees. Your ass goes down. You extend your knees. Your ass comes up and you lock out. You're done. That's how you squat. Obviously, there's degrees of external rotation that happen at the hip. There's forward knee travel over the ankle. There's a lot of bracing. There's a lot of mechanical things that happen when we squat. But in essence, what we're performing is what we would describe as an axial loaded knee and hip extension exercise, ext flexion extension exercise. So your knees start to bend and they flex, flex, flex. Your butt gets closer to your calves. You get towards the bottom. When you get to the top of that squat to train through a full range of motion, you need to extend your knees. And that would require to reach that full range of motion that your knees extend fully, which would be quote unquote locking out. However, if you're somebody who hyperextends or has a tendency to hyperextend joints, I, for one, am one of those people, you might not want to hyperextend your knees. In the same way that at the top of a bench press, you might not want to hyperextend your elbows, or at the top of a, say, hip extension biased exercise like an RDL or a deadlift, you might not want to hyperextend your hips to the point where you begin flexing your upper back. Because again, part of that whole hip extension piece. If you go too far, it's actually just lumbar hyperextension. So we want to lock out at the top of our movements, but we don't want to lock out into hyperextension and we might not want to um, lock out in an overly aggressive fashion. Okay. So the next question, this is an interesting one, comes from prescription properties. And he asks, is no fap beneficial? And for those of you who are uninitiated, no fap basically means not masturbating. 
And there are some pretty crazy theories around NoFap, and some people absolutely swear by it. And I don't have a particularly professional opinion, nor should you really take too much uh, salt or put too much... Take, take my opinion with a grain of salt. There we go. Don't salt my opinion. I think if you were going to salt it to taste, you might need quite a bit because I'm pretty sure this is going to be an uneducated opinion on whether or whether or not you shouldn't masturbate, which if you're driving in your car on your way to work was probably not what you were banking on hearing me talk about. If you were running on the treadmill, you probably weren't banking on it. But I think it's an interesting physiological question because it's thrown around a lot for men and ladies, this might be interesting to you too. Not masturbating for whatever reason first it has created this ideology that uh, you will like store or produce more testosterone. And I don't know if that has ever been fleshed out or tested. I do know, if I can recall correctly, that there is a testosterone dip during the refractory period after a man has an orgasm. Now, does that mean that it's unhealthy to masturbate or that you should never masturbate? I don't know. But what most men are after when they're asking this question is like, okay, what am I going to stand to gain from not doing this? If Is holding this stuff in going to give me more testosterone, make me build more muscle, make me more aggressive, whatever? I don't think that's... Uh, I don't think that's going to be the case, not to a meaningful level. And that's still not my way of saying like, hey, free pass, go masturbate as much as you want, or hey, never masturbate again. I think that you should probably develop a habit with that that makes sense for your lifestyle and with you and your partner or lack of your partner. But one thing that I think might be beneficial from not fapping all the time would be you'd probably reduce your consumption of internet pornography because most men, when they fap, are going to simultaneously consume some form of internet pornography. And internet pornography is something that is consumed uh, at an extremely high rate in our society. It's mildly concerning when we talk about like, hey, what are the implications of consuming this kind of content, particularly hyper-explicit content, on my sex life when I'm with an actual partner, right? Like, what are the byproducts of, you know, extensive porn watching or masturbating and watching porn all the time? And I think that what we do know is that it has a desensitizing effect and it might reduce or I should say it might skew your expectations around real sex and what most women look like. So there could be some benefit there, but I don't know if like not masturbating is going to make your gains any better. But I would imagine that taking a little break, if it's something that you do like way too much, might be a decent idea. So there was your totally out of left field take on whether or not I think this guy should masturbate. Okay, so next question comes from Ingrid Delamus, and she asks, what machines do you have in your gym? So she's talking about my garage gym, and I have a ton of free weight equipment like dumbbells, barbells, kettlebells, hex bars, bumper plates. You know, I have tons of dumbbells, tons of kettlebells, a lot of bands. I have a squat rack, a beautiful bench, all the things that I would need to train the entirety of my body with free weights, but there are a few machines that I was particularly interested in getting for a variety of reasons. One of them is a lat pull-down tower. The reason I like a lat pull tower is because I love to have my clients train that vertical pull, and we do some 
analogs of vertical pulling with other stuff. I'll have clients do straight arm pull downs on the free motion, which I'll get to in a minute. I'll have them do banded pull ups, which I quite like when I do a low band setup on my rogue rack. I like, um, you know, even dumbbell pullovers, even though I wouldn't necessarily describe those as a vertical pull, there's some similar elements. But when it comes to training women in particular, and I train a lot of women in my in-person clientele, um, being able to give them a vertical pull that doesn't require them pulling their body up over a bar, even in an assisted fashion, is really, really practical, right? Because I can't have all women do assisted pull-ups because some of my clients just will not be able to fatigue their lats in the same way that they could on a lat pull-down because their grip's going to fail. So that's one that I really love. Another one I have is a cable row. I'm a huge fan of cable rowing, particularly close or neutral grip cable rows. I like them for developing the upper back. I like that the strength and resistance profile, meaning where is the movement or where am I strongest in this range of motion relative to where is the actual like impact physics has on the implement I'm moving? Do these things match up? And with a lot of rowing, they don't. Particularly free weight rowing can be a little tricky. So a cable row is a wonderful machine to have. And then the last machine, and this is kind of the big daddy, I spent like $5,000 on this machine because I love it, is a free motion dual cable. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this, this is that machine that you'll see at the gym that has two arms on it that guys or girls will usually adjust to do things like cable flies, or they'll drop them all the way to the bottom to do like cable laterals. It's one of my favorite machines out there. I love it for chest flies. It's fabulous for things like cable arm training, right? Because I myself like to do a lot of cable-related arm training. I have sensitivity in my elbows, so things like rope extensions tend to be more agreeable than things like skull crushers, for example. And again, that cable apparatus really gives me the, the ability to, to make better decisions with how I train and making sure that I'm taking my joints and my longevity into account, which was something that I did find mildly problematic when I had less equipment because having to do everything free weight didn't give me the ideal ability to match strength curves, resistance profiles, etc. I can just make better decisions. And this really has increased the library of exercises that I have at my disposal. And so the next question I have is from Akayan, A-K-K-I-A-I-N-N, Akayan. And she says, can you tell me how much time a 20-year-old should spend exercising? I can't because everybody's lifestyle is different. Everybody's situation is different. But I do think you should commit if you're serious about your fitness and your health and your longevity, which all of us should be, um, you should commit at least 90 minutes a week to your exercise. And I know that for some of you, you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. And for others, you're like, that's nothing. I literally work out 90 minutes every day. I'm saying like, that's the bare ass minimum. That's where I would set the line. Three 30 minute total body resistance training sessions a week or two total body resistance training sessions a week with something aerobic. Like if you want to take this seriously though, you could consider working out four to seven days a week, depending on how you adjust your training. I would recommend somewhere between four to six if you're super serious. I think taking zero days off is kind of silly. You don't give your body or your mind the time to really detach from that aggressive training stimulus and training hard really does help. But one thing that I know is that young people who have more free time have a tendency to be a little bit obsessive with things. So there's certainly a line at which there's too much. And we get to that point where we would say, hey, the, the returns here are diminishing or that point of diminishing marginal returns where basically, oh, if I work out 10 hours, I actually get better gains than if I work out 12 hours weekly because I have, I actually end up overtraining or training beyond the point at which I can recover. And so finding that sweet spot can be tricky when you're really zealous and, you know, 
passionate and you want to do the most and you want to make the gains. I totally get that. We've been there. I've been there. A lot of people listening have been there, but there is a limit to just how much time that you're going to spend in the gym that'll end up being productive. And where that limit is, generally speaking, has to do with how long you've been training. And so for older clients, older, or I shouldn't say older, more advanced trainees, people who have been in the game, have more skin in the game, who've been doing this for years, they might require a more advanced, more frequent, more intense stimulus. But for a 20-year-old who at all likelihood is probably still a novice or at the, you know, maybe an intermediate lifter, you could probably get away with training between 5 to 12 hours a week if you train intelligently. I can't imagine that you'd need to train for more than 12 hours a week. You know, that's six two-hour sessions. I'm, I'm imagining that the target number is probably well below that for you know, 90% of the population, even those who do lift, if you're training intelligently. So hopefully that gives you something um, to work with. And I think that might be beneficial. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick second to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And if you're finding value, it would mean the world to me if you would share it on your social media. Simply screenshot whatever platform you're listening to and share the episode to your Instagram story or share it to Facebook. But be sure to tag me so I can say thanks and we can chat it up about what you liked and how I can continue to improve. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast and enjoy the rest of the episode. Next question is from at Mia Giselle and she says, tips on returning back to exercising after being sick. Um, my number one tip is to truly make sure that you're not sick anymore because nothing's more obnoxious. And this is again, somebody who worked at a gym for years than members coming to the gym when they're still clearly sick or when they've maybe been one day free of their cold. And then they pass it around to everybody at the gym, not just the trainers, but the other members. And I know with the pandemic, everybody's been talking about Everybody thinks they're an epidemiologist and an expert on infectious disease. But, you know, we, the surface contact stuff with COVID has really been up in the air. But there are a lot of other colds, flus, bugs that do really have a tendency to spread quite effectively with surface contact. So places like the gym can be a very easy place to get sick um, if somebody's walking in there and they're totally sick, infecting everybody. So number one tip is make sure you're actually good to go back before you go back. And then the next piece is to take it slow. See where you're at and make a lot of what I like to call game time decisions. So you sit down, you take the time, you plan it out. What am I training today? What are my goals today? And then work in some ways for you to kind of let off the gas if you feel like you're overdoing it. Like if you're like, okay, I'm going in first day back after getting sick. I'm going to do the exact workout that I was going to do and act like I never got sick. That I don't love. Instead, maybe look at that workout and go, okay, I'm going to try to do 75, 80% of this. If I can push here, I'm going to push here. If I need to back off, I'll back off here. I, you know, Give yourself the ability to train with some degree of intensity and with some degree of ambition, but also understand that it's very reasonable that you might have some type of lingering fatigue, if you will, some present of like just, you know, hey, I'm not quite all the way back physically, mentally, Maybe I've been derailed because I've had this cold for a while and I'm just, you know, feeling a little weak. Weakness tends to be pretty common. Just be patient with yourself there. Um, And I, I think that that's really the best key that I could give you. Okay. At Shelby Lake asks, suggestions on beneficial snacks before workout. How long before a workout should I eat? So I'll give you the advice that I give the clients that I work with online, the clients that I work with in person. Speaking of which, the new coaching company that I am launching is going to be called Core Coaching. Very excited about this. I, this is the kind of, I guess, low-key 20 minutes into a podcast 
uh, drop. But yeah, I'm going to be launching a coaching company. I've gotten to the point with my online client roster now where I'm happy with the amount of clients that I'm working with. Um, and I'd like to help more people. And I just simply can't work with all the people who apply, which is an unbelievable blessing. And so one of the things I'm really excited to bring to the table and that I'm happy to be announcing today is the launch of core coaching and core coaching will be coming soon. I'm working on everything now, but my goal is to hire trainers and coaches to do the things that have been so effective with the clients that I've worked with online and in person for years, hiring coaches who have an experience in working with clients in person and online. I think that's what's really going to make this different. Like I'll be selecting coaches who have five to 10 years of in-person personal training experience in addition to what they've done working with clients online. I don't want to create a coaching company that is all a bunch of people who've only ever sat behind Excel spreadsheets or people who only work with bodybuilders. I want to create a coaching company that can really work with anybody in any situation. And that means if you're a bodybuilder at the highest level and you want to compete, we can take care of you. If you're an off-season athlete and you want to come into your next season at the best and perform at your best, we can take care of you. If you're a mom with two kids and you're just trying to figure out how to get back to working out after the pandemic, we can take care of you. If you're working out from home and you're totally new to this and you need help, perhaps even in a one-on-one setting, whether that's hands-on or using some of the video interface technology that we have access to like Zoom, we can take care of you. And really trying to build a team of coaches who have the experience that I think is required to provide a quality product in a space that truthfully, I believe is loaded with crap. And I do think that online coaches, many of them have good intentions, but a lot of them just don't have enough skin in the game and they don't have enough practice to actually help people because they don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to talk to their clients because they've never trained enough people in person. They're like, okay, I know how to help people get on stage because I can pump out macros and write bodybuilding plans. Well, it's like, hey buddy, guess what? You train people, okay? Human beings, okay? They are not machines. You don't just type on them and they just give you the output that you want. There are nuances and intricacies that you learn as you coach for years. And so creating a coaching company with people like that in it is really, really something I've wanted to do for a long time because I think that it's industry changing in the way and in many ways, but particularly in how it would allow clients to interface with their coach, knowing that, yes, I'm choosing online coaching because it's more convenient, more cost effective, but I'm getting the level of, I'm getting the quality that comes with somebody who's actually coached in person for a very long time and can still deliver these things to me, these, whether it's, uh, form-related stuff, whether it's nutrition-related stuff, whether it's psychology-related stuff, obviously that's in the scope of practice. But, you know, the, the nuance is the art of coaching that you could only have if you've been doing this for a long time. And to me, this is a really exciting project and I'm really happy. So getting back to the question, suggestions on beneficial snacks to eat before a workout and how long should I eat? I recommend clients eat between 60 to 90 minutes prior to a workout getting closer to 90 tends to be better. Um, I don't find that most people can fully digest food in an hour unless they chew really well, which most people do not. So I like to be about 90 minutes before training. I also like to keep my dietary fat intake fairly low in my pre-training meals because fat does have a tendency to slow the rate at which things digest. And I don't want things sitting around in my stomach for a considerable amount of time 
especially leading into training, I like to train on a lighter feeling stomach. So about 90 minutes prior to training, I like to have something with protein in it and something with a mix of two different types of carbohydrates, particularly one that's fructose dominant and one that's glucose dominant because they use different transporters to get carbohydrate into the bloodstream. So I might do something like strawberries and cereal with a whey protein shake or a little bit of yogurt and jerky right? There's protein and sugar in both of those. Those tend to be okay as well. And it doesn't have to be a huge meal, but I think the meal should fit in the context of your overall goals. But we're looking at, in simplified terms, getting a feeding in that has a balance of protein and carbohydrates that's low on fat. If you can get different types of carbohydrate, that would be additionally beneficial. And trying to add that into your routine about 90 minutes before you train. And you can honestly do the same thing after uh, if you're just looking for a post-workout meal. All right. So next question from Garza Vanessa. What do you think of fat burners like EHP Labs OxyShred? I hear a lot about it. So fat burners are what I would call things that enhance fat metabolism indirectly. And what I mean by that is when you take something that would burn fat directly, it would literally go in and break down fat. But what we see in most over-the-counter fat burner products are things like appetite suppressants, which could help with fat loss by minimizing caloric intake, and stimulants like caffeine, which can help with caloric expenditure by doing things like speeding up the heart rate, decreasing rate of fatigue so you can exercise harder. Whether or not these products are going to make a meaningful difference for you in your fat loss is very much up in the air. And I think if they make any difference, it's a small one. So what you have to do here is weigh what I like to call the opportunity cost. And what I mean by that is this. If a fat burner costs $40 for a month's supply, can you fit that $40 into your budget or could you make another $40 purchase, right, that would give you better outcome? So for example, if you're looking to lose fat but you're not eating enough dietary protein, you would be 10 times better off spending that $40 on a protein supplement than a fat burner supplement because nutrition and getting your nutrition right is exponentially more directly related to fat loss than something like an indirect thing, more of like what you would find in a fat burner. And the more people I work with, the more people I talk to, the more people that I help with their fat loss, the more I find that the opportunity cost of purchasing a fat burner is almost never the best option. There's almost always better ways to spend your money with regards to enhancing your fat loss and your exercise performance. Okay. Jessica98 asks, what would you say your online coaching is most beneficial for? So I think the best way to answer this is, who is the online coaching program most beneficial for? And I'll just put it in simplified terms. In general, in-person coaching is best for people who need that hands-on approach and accountability. In general, online coaching is best for people who need that same level of accountability, but do not need the hands-on support because perhaps they've been lifting long enough not to need somebody to oversee them. Because most trainers charge somewhere between $60 to $200 an hour, seeing an in-person personal trainer for every workout isn't super practical, economically speaking, for most people. So having an online coach might present a better option because for online coaches, you're generally going to pay somewhere between $199 and $1,000 a month, which generally comes out to less than going and seeing a personal trainer every time you go to the gym or even just a few times a week. So 
I would say that online coaching in most cases with most coaches is going to be best for people who have a history and competency of lifting, but still need the accountability, support, education. And maybe they are just some, like a lot of my clients, for example, are coaches and they're just done at the end of the day. They're like, you know what, dude, fuck this. I have been dealing with other people's shit and other people's fitness for weeks and months and years. And when it comes time for me, I am tapped out and I just need somebody who's going to tell me what to do so I can show up and execute because my fitness matters to me. But I, I put my clients first and I've got a job to do and I cut corners because I'm a people pleaser. So I'm going to put myself last. Like I work with a lot of clients in that wheelhouse. So I find that online coaching is really good for people like that too, or who just need that um, next level of accountability. Oh, here's another one at Steffi Lynn 84 asks, thinking about hiring an online coach, what price range is reasonable? And I can't say what's reasonable without knowing your financial situation, but I will say this. You tend to get what you pay for. I find that my prices are very reasonable for what I offer. I don't, I I do know a lot of coaches that charge an absurdly high amount just because they know that they can, but then do not deliver. I don't know these people personally, but I have heard about some of these people and it's quite sad. Um, But I think that most trainers have a tendency to charge what they think they are worth. And I think that many trainers or many coaches have a tendency to really charge too little Um, and, and oftentimes that's because they can't deliver a high quality product. So as a consumer being on the other end, I would say, you know, you tend to get what you pay for in life. So just take that piece of advice with you when you pick out your coach. But if something seems like astronomically higher and reasonable, I wouldn't necessarily just go, Oh, that's obviously better because it's more money because the fitness space does have a tendency to attract some shysters and some kind of just generally nasty, greedy people. Um, but it's mostly all awesome people. Like, and most people who get into coaching or online coaching are really cool people. So, you know, hopefully you don't run into a shit bag. Um, if you work with me, I can probably tell you that you're not going to run into a shit bag, but they're out there. So just be careful. And you do tend to get what you pay for. But if somebody's just asinine with their pricing, you can find high quality coaching for a reasonable price. And I'd be happy to give you some recommendations. If you know my vibe and you're like, no, I don't want to work with you or your coaching company. Okay. Next question at Sanika Vade. And she says, I have an injury. I've been out for two months. How do I preserve muscle mass? I'm only allowed to walk. So again, resistance training is quite possibly the best stimulus for maintaining muscle mass. However, there are some things we can do that are indirect or lifestyle related with our protein intake and our sleep that can help. And you might also, once you get cleared for exercise or if you have a good working relationship with whoever it is that gave you this initial kind of boundary of, hey, you're only allowed to walk, maybe you can ask at what point you can start incorporating low-level exercise. But really what you need to do to maintain your muscle is optimize your protein intake. Try to get as much protein as you can within reason, probably between 0.7 to 1.2 grams per pound spread across four meals a day. You want to spread that protein out so your muscle protein synthesis remains high and then do what you can to get good sleep because getting good sleep has favorable impacts on body composition and muscle preservation. So I think that that's a really, really good thing to focus on if your goal is maintaining and preserving muscle. All right, guys, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode and for just subscribing to the show 
in general. If you like my content on Instagram or you like the show at all, it really makes a big difference if you do things like subscribe, like posts, share posts, every little thing helps. And I'm not afraid to say it. Every single one of you guys has been instrumental to my growth and helping me get my message out there. And I value all of you a ton. And I hope that we can continue to work together to help you improve your lives and the people's lives around you, whether it's your fitness, your performance, your weight loss, whatever your goals are, I want to help you get there. So thanks so much for tuning in and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you.